Cybersecurity is about one thing. Stealing is not okay. Now, today, I have someone that I met when he was 13 years old, so I guess I was around 10 years older than him, so I think I was 23, or maybe I was 25. But he's the first person I ever spotted in a double back. And it took me two days to do it, because the first day he was ready, I was scared. So I had to wait till the next day. So without any further ado, let's meet Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for coming today, man. You climbed Mount Fuji yesterday, right? I did. Yep. Yeah, but you came here. Wait, you came here. Was that the first thing you did? No, we were here for a few days, and then we okay. went to Fuji. Well, you got a couple of guys with you. I do. All right. Now, let's start off with, where were you born? Uh, in California. You were? Yeah. So how long were you in California? Uh, 11 years. You didn't come here till you were 11 years old? Right. I thought you guys had been here. For some reason, I had that in my mind that you'd already been here. I didn't know that part of it. But you guys came here when you were 11. Yeah. So how old was Long? She was 13. 13, okay. So you grew up in California. Where in California? Uh, in, near San Jose, Silicon Valley. It's a small town called Los Gatos. And did your parents keep a place there? They kept it? Yeah, they kept it. So they're there now. So how long were you... Okay, that's, that's the part I missed. I missed... I always thought that you were always here. I don't know, for some reason. Where did reason. these people come from? Yeah, yeah. I said, well, <laughs> I've been here forever. So you came here. So I met you right, I guess, two years after you'd come here, right? Right. And you were at the American School? Right. So you'd been there for two years? Yep. So what'd you do? You went through the elementary school or junior middle school? Uh, elementary school at St. Mary's and then transferred over to ASIJ. Okay, so you one year at St. Mary's. Right. Okay, and then you went to ASIJ. Yep. And that's when you came into the gymnastics program I had. Yep. And did you, you didn't really do the whole program, did you? Because you came in and you did a few things. And right. I mean, we worked together for a number of years, I think. After that, for after sure. After that. I yeah. mean, we still, all the time. Yeah. You just had your parents here a couple of years ago. Yep. I took them around. Yeah. 2019. That was right, 2019. Yep. Wow. Was that, that was just before COVID. Right. That's right. Just before COVID hit. All right, so tell me what it was like for you when you were a little kid. When you, were in, when you were growing up, were you more academic or were you more physical? I mean, kind of a combination of both. I was into academics, wasn't really into, say, math, but really liked reading, literature. You know, the thing I was most into when I was a kid in school was Russian literature, so I got really into that. And, you know, at that point, probably decided maybe I'd be a professor. You know how it is when you're a kid. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but, you know, Literature is great. So I read a lot of Russian literature as a little kid before I graduated high school. But also gymnastics was the primary focus because as a, I don't know, 10, 11-year-old, I wanted to be in the U.S. Olympic team. So when we came to Japan, the first thing we did was we went to Ikigami Sports Club. And for two years, I did gymnastics there. It was like five days a week, two hours a day. And it was, I guess, total immersion in the language. Because it, you know, we didn't speak Japanese. They certainly didn't speak English. We were the only Americans. And I remember sitting on the train with my sister coming back from gymnastics. And we were like, what do you think he meant by it? We were like, I don't know. Maybe you're, you're, your legs aren't straight. Your legs aren't together. You're not pointing your toes. I don't know what he meant. He was shouting at me too. 
And eventually, you don't have any choice. You're, you're going to learn when you're a little kid, and there's no option except Japanese. That is how you learn a language. No option. Complete. You're yeah, no option. There's no plan B. The language right. because you have to. <laughs> and that that was the beginning of you know kind of a lifetime of study. Is that right? So I met you after all of that. You sure did. You had two years. So did had you stop with Ikenami? I think I the, the way it worked out, I, I mean, I don't remember the exact specifics, but I think because we were thinking of U.S. Olympic team, we were thinking, okay, I mean, it was interesting working in the Japanese gym, but very different. And we heard there was this American, and he was amazing, and he taught gymnastics, and he's from California, uh, culturally, probably a good fit. Maybe you can speak English together. Um, and that's, that's where that happened. I don't even know who made that introdu introduction or how it initially happened, but I remember meeting you and practicing and the double backflip story is kind of great because oh, right. it was in fact terrifying to do a double backflip. But you, but, but you were, <laughs> the reason why I did it with you, Mike, is because, and I called your mother before we did it. I said, and I said, I'm going to attempt a skill with Mike. I may kill him. Cause you but... just said, yeah, he might, he might, he might be a paraplegic after we finish this. But I want you okay. Now, I know it's not going to stand after if something happens. Right. And you were ready to do it. You Anything I asked you to do, you were ready to do. Yeah. And that's what scared me. You were ready to do it. And I said, you're going to have to hold this tuck twice. And you said, good. So the first yeah. time, I remember the first day, I said, you ready? I said, yes. And I said, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it. I said, I promise when I come in tomorrow, I'll be ready. And also, I think pretty classic gymnastics training slash coach slash this is just how it works when you're a kid doing gymnastics. I don't remember which day it was, but I remember doing one, and I did not pull it off, and I landed right on my head. And that was a, I don't know, a double and a half or something right, like right, that. Right. Landed on my head, and you came up, you're like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm okay. You're like, okay, I want you to get up. Let's do it again. And we did it, yeah. And, pushed you harder. Yeah. You know, a lifetime of doing sports, no matter what the sport was, after an injury, you know you got to do it again, you or you'll to. be afraid and you'll never do it again. So that was like my whole introduction to the philosophy of no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many beatings you take, you get up yeah, on, <laughs> and you do it again. Yeah. So that was a great life lesson I think I learned at 13. Yeah, but you got it. Then you got yeah. the back. And I think partly the first time, I didn't know, how, I'd never spotted anybody in a double. And I knew you'd go around twice and get you through and you didn't clear it the first time. But the second time I gave you enough that you made it. Yeah. And you made it through and I said, yes. The next person I spotted in that was a guy by the name of Lance Bukowski. Yeah. And he was smaller than you. And it was a lot easier for me to throw him up and I already had the experience. Yeah. The, ti the timing is interesting too because you're spinning so fast. Obviously you can't see anything. No. So you have to just go, you know you the timing is right. You've done the double and then you know, okay, now, boom, open. That's right. And it isn't a matter of, I see the floor. It's a matter of, you see, you you've got the, the timing floor. and you go, now. That's and right. if the floor is not there or your head is hitting the floor, you right. timing is a little off. It's off, <laughs> right. And then you have to go for it again. That's the same on my front double. Yeah. Wow. So tell me, okay, so you went through school here. Then when you went through school, you because your writing's always been impeccable. I mean, you've had really good writing because you've done some things. You wrote part of our journal, I think. Uh, I think the, you wrote the, the journal that I can. The, the original. The, um, you sure did. International Gymnastic Club training guide for training instructors. Training guide for instructors, right. Right. And I yeah. had to take out some of the. <laughs> you did the whole guard. I still have it, too. Yeah, no, that was hilarious. <laughs> and I think I wrote that when I was 16. You that did. That was fun. That was really, yeah. really good. 
I have to put it through some other stuff right now and see yeah. how it how it how it I think fares. I may have been one. I mean, I was one of the first instructors for sure. One of the first. 10. Oh, you, of course you were. And, and you because of that, and because of working with you from being thirteen, like really kind of got into the philosophy of yeah, the International Gymnastics Club, and all of that kind of goes into the training guide. But also when you're speaking in terms of teaching gymnastics and getting kids to believe that they can do stuff because when you know when you're dealing with a child anyone who's really young yeah they're flexible they're strong enough they can do anything but they got to believe they can do it and that was pretty much the thing was taking taking somebody's kid and saying okay you're 10 pretty sure you can do a backflip but you got to believe it first or you're not going to do it you land on your head so you got to kind of talk them through the whole thing of like okay i can see myself doing this I can picture myself doing this. I got this. Mm-hmm. I got this. And once you see that, you're like, oh, okay. He believes it. Then you're like, okay, cool. I give him a spot, but it isn't going to be me picking him up and throwing him over. It's going to be me just there in case they fall. Right. And that was something that was pretty cool to see because it's one of the first times I saw that you could actually get people over some of these like early stage maybe blocks of, I can do this. I can't do this. And kids are great because they don't have a whole lot of like mental baggage of, I can't do this. I can't do that. I know I can't do this. So when you work with them, it's usually not too hard to get them to be like, okay, I got this. He just did it. I'm going to do it. That's why we now, now, right now, I brought my program down from 300 kids pre-COVID to post-COVID. Now we have 60 kids and I've gotten rid of 10 instructors and it's just me. Because it's just something I want to continue to right. do. Because kids are very candid. But we only work with kids from age 5 to age 10. Because after 10, they're pretty much set. Really, it's after, after 12. And they're getting close to it at that time. With their ideas and beliefs about who they are and what's possible and what isn't set there. But when they're really young, we can still plant those seeds and get them to believe I can and build up their confidence. But also, I found having been here for a long time, that it's not just what you're trying to teach them, it's what you show them. So like I always tell parents this, your children don't represent your future. They represent your past. Because the only thing you can teach them is what you've already learned. Now on the other hand, what you represent to your kids is their possible future. So you are to them, but most of all to yourself, to be all you can be to show them what's possible. So when you left here, you were in what grade when you left Japan? Um, I didn't leave Japan after high school, went back and forth for a while, so I went to college in Southern California, um, in Claremont, and... What'd you study? Uh, English literature. Of course. Of course. Of course. Wasn't a math major. Did you, did you still want to <laughs> become a professor? Not really. I mean, you know how it is when you're young, you really don't know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I graduated from high school and thought, you know what? I'm going to write. I'm going to go back to Santa Cruz where I'd been before. I was surfing at the time, and I thought, I'm going to write. For a living. And that year, 12 months, I published. I made about $500 in the year in total. And at the end of that year, I thought, you know, maybe not. Maybe I'm not going to be a writer. Maybe I should try something else. What was so the book on? What kind of book did you it write? It wasn't a book. It was, was just a, a series of uh, you know short stories. Okay. And it, But at any rate, it was obviously not going to make a living. So I got a job. I needed a job. I needed to make money. 
And I got a sales job working for Pure Software, which was Reed Hastings' first startup, um, Reed of Netflix. And that startup was really successful. There were lots of smart, interesting people in the company. And I was like, you know what? Startups are awesome. This is fun. And that was the beginning of a long series of startups in uh, software development, um, Pure Software being the first, but also WebLogic many others, and then ultimately 15 years ago, I got really into security and stuck with it ever since. That's right, because we also met in Florida. Right. That was just, you were doing a convention then. And now the thing that I really like about what you've been doing now, Mike, I've been seeing you on videos all the time, talking about the new, the next convention or this and that, and yeah. you're, you're all over the place when you're doing it too. You're yeah. like that guy in that Old Spice commercial. Now, I'm taking him in the shower. <laughs> now I'm on a horse. Now I'm on a yacht. Hey, now I have pearls. <laughs> you're everywhere. Yeah, that's been just awesome. And the cool thing about that is, um, you know, I'm not a cybersecurity practitioner. I'm more on the sales side, but I work with uh, a lot of CISOs, a lot of uh, people who are hands-on working the security globally for many companies. And those are the people who come on my events uh, with the Silicon Valley chapter of the ISSA, and they talk about security issues, practices, technologies, and those are the people who do, you know, all the presenting at these events. And it's just been awesome. I've been doing it for about four years. Met some incredible people, um, you know, in all walks of life. You know. So people. tell me, so if I came into an event like this, what would be the first thing? What would I start to feel? What would I, what would I get first off? You feel that you were surrounded by a bunch of hardcore security geeks who are really, really, really into security. Okay. And now tell cyber, me, what's really, really, really into security? I mean, like what? Like cybersecurity stuff, like you know, at the code level. Like if you want to get into stuff that you know mere mortals don't understand. And by mere mortals, I mean your average person doesn't know how much code is out there. If you want to talk about the most basic thing, um, code quality is really important. If there's errors in code, they can be exploited by hackers. And when you release code, there's an issue of you got to make money. So at some point, you're like, you know, there's errors in this code, but I got to release it. We got to get going. And I got a favorite story. This guy who was a VP of engineering at a company, large company. They made a firewall, right? He made it. It was wonderful. He tried to release it. The security team said, whoa, whoa, way too many errors in this code. You know, we are the security people. We're putting on the brakes. You go back, fix these errors, then you can release it and it can be sold commercially. He took six months, seven engineers, and they were able to reduce the number of errors by 5%. And at that point, they released it. And that is terrifying. And at that point, he had this epiphany, and the epiphany was, as anyone would think, this isn't possible. We have to automate this process of finding and fixing these errors in code. So he started a company, and that's where I worked with him, the company he started. And it's really important that these things are done correctly. And many people understand, say, the business drivers behind, you know, security is important. There are breaches. Um, probably my other favorite story, is there was one guy, usually they say security is a cost center. It's not part of the product. So this guy was like, God, I can't get budget. I need security. We need to get this right. We're getting attacked. We're getting breached. But I'm not getting budget because they're like, you're not part of the product. He drew a picture of a car without wheels. And he said, this is our company. We are this car. We cannot sell this car without wheels. No one would buy it. They're part. 
the costs of goods sold. We need wheels. This is the car. We're security. We are part of the product. Without us, no one will buy this product. And at that point, he said, I think they finally got it. I got my budget. And I was like, yeah, keep it. Like, you want to keep the analogies in ways that the people who are making the decisions can understand them because when I say mere mortals, boy, your CEO isn't going to understand someone talking about errors in code. They're going to understand profit, bottom line, and these things they get. And if they get it, you get your budget. Is it still big, a real big problem about security? Is, this, is it getting worse or is it getting better? Are we starting to get a lockdown on it? I mean, that's okay. a really hard question. Um, but it's, first of all, it's always going to be a problem. There will never be a golden age where you're like, yep, we got nothing to worry about. Wherever there's a lock, there's someone as that wants to pick it. As long as humans interact with computers, you're going to have a problem. Okay. And you know, currently there are over 700,000 openings in cybersecurity in the United States because they can't find enough people qualified to do the work. In 2023, that number is projected to rise to a million. And with that, you think, probably, this is going to be a problem for a long time. And the only way to fix it is to have more people who are looking to get into this field. A uh, number of chapters of the ISSA that I'm part of are very, very focused on getting young people into security because it's important. Mm -hmm. And the um, North Texas chapter of the ISSA is very involved in having college-based so sub-programs that are, like, they run their own ISSA. They've got their own president. They've got their own vice president. They've got their own communications person. And it's all a bunch of people in college. They don't have a bunch of old people hanging out telling them what to do. Nope, this is your chapter. So they started promoting that, and that's a great idea. Um, you get a lot of young people involved, and that's what you need to do. You need to say, hey, this isn't like, you know, just people who've been doing this forever and they've got 30 years of experience. No, you could have great ideas and be really good at defending a system at 20. And you need to be encouraged to do that. So, Do we have schools that are teaching this, or do you have to go to some sort of special there, course? There are programs oh, okay. that are coming out now which are focused on cybersecurity in colleges. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, people have pretty random and unique backgrounds. Like, you want someone who approaches problems in a different way. Um, diversity and inclusion is another big thing because, you know, what did someone famously tell me? If you, uh, if you exclude women from cybersecurity, which has been a thing in the past, you're missing out on half of the po population of the world. And the, there's been a number of panels which we've done on diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And the issue isn't just that, you know, we want to be nice and, like, we want someone to have a job. The idea is, is if you come from a different background, oh, we want you in security. Because you will approach the problem differently than, say, I will. Everyone who comes from a different background is going to approach the problem differently. And what you really are doing is helping people grapple with complex problems. Mm -hmm. And so with that, you absolutely want to make sure your team is as diverse as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's something, you know, from the hiring managers throughout the culture of the company, you want to encourage. Mm -hmm. Tell me this, Mike. What made you decide to get into cybersecurity? You're in the sales yeah, side of it. Right. You're not in the, the, the coding side. Correct. But, um, and I know you love that and you're good at yeah. it. Yeah. And what happened was I, I randomly, I've been, I've been in technology sales for a long time, and I got a job working at Cable and Wireless. They're 
based in the UK, but they had Cable and Wireless America. And at the time, there was a small consultant, consulting group within that company that was 100% focused on cybersecurity. And I met the practitioners, the hands-on people who get in and do this stuff. And they were smart. They had pretty bizarre and interesting backgrounds. And the more I talked to these guys, I kind of thought, you know, I really like how you guys roll. Like, I get fundamentally where you're coming from, which is that if you break it all down, cybersecurity is about one thing. Stealing is not okay. And hackers, and it doesn't matter who they are, if they're breaking in and taking something, which is what they do, mm -hmm. it's not okay. And, and privacy is the same issue. You know, if you're breaking in and you are violating someone's privacy, that's not okay. And our job as cybersecurity practitioners is to stop people from stealing stuff. Super simple. Period. And I feel yeah. really strongly about it. You know, I have friends in law enforcement and we all agree. It's just like, well, this is, how is this ever okay? Well, yeah. then also your time in Japan, you lived in a society that really has built themselves on which yours is yours. Right. It's not mine. I, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, Japan's a great example. <laughs> that's right. You know, I'm, I'm a, I, I ride a bicycle. I like bicycling. In San Francisco, there is no question you need two very heavy, very solid locks. Uh, in Amsterdam, another lovely place to be a cyclist. In Amsterdam, there are so many bikes that there are bike-stealing gangs. In Amsterdam, you need three very solid, very good locks, or your bike will be gone and in a shipping container and heading to China. Mm. Yeah. So That's basically, in Japan where people kind of understand that ceiling mm. is basically wrong. Mm. I mean, there's hundreds of stories. I'm sure you've got a lot of them too. But, you know, I think as a kid, my mom left her purse on the train. She got her purse back with all the money in it. Um, bicycles here, growing up, there were never any locks. Zero, mm. none, never. Now they've got kind of like this little lock. It's very thin. So you can, if you want to break it, you can. I, I take pictures of them and send them to my friend in San Francisco uh, he's the owner of Market Street Cycles because he thinks it's funny. I think it's funny. Yeah. You come from San Francisco, you see a lock like that, and you're like, that would last not even five minutes in this town. <laughs> well, they just take the whole bike. Yeah. It's gone. I think that what, the, what locks mean here in Japan is it just keeps honest people honest. Right. It stops them from doing something they would do, they may do, because it's in our DNA right. to do those things. Take I mean, there, there was the thing the here, I don't know if they still do this, <laughs> but when the trains stop, right. the trains would stop at night at midnight and bicycles would be at the train station and they would be unlocked and people would take the bicycle and bicycle home but then the next day they would return the bicycle to the station and that was never really considered stealing it was more like borrowing borrowing right um it still like frowned upon by the right. uh, local you know right. police but it was never malicious and they were never out to like right. steal stuff they were just right. like oh hey, trains have stopped i need to get home i'll take this bike i'll return it tomorrow morning that's right that's right. That's true. That's, that's the way it used to be. I don't know if it's that way now. As you get older, you stop doing those things, so you don't get to know. <laughs> so you're over here now. What's your trip consist of now? What's your reason for being here? So there's, there's two reasons for me to be here. One is I have not been here in three years because of the COVID lockdown. You know, being in America, they closed the borders for two and a half years exactly, so I couldn't come. And I love Japan. I think this is of all the countries I've been to, this is my favorite place on the planet, and probably because I grew up here, but Tokyo will always be home to me. So I'm just dying to come back um, and you know bring friends and show them 
the Japan I love. And the other reason is prior to COVID, I ran a consultancy called Pre, and I was helping startups in Israel and the United States with go-to-market and selling it to Japan. So I was coming here every month, every other month, and then, boom, uh, February 28th of 2020 was my last trip, and I couldn't come back, and my business stopped being about Japan uh, because a business in Japan is done quite much like what we're doing now, face-to-face. It's not done on Zoom. So I gave up and then started helping companies sell into the United States. But uh, the reason for being here is to rekindle some of those relationships, see some of the distributors I know, see some of the technology companies I know. I've got, you know, six, seven people that I've been like, I'm going to see you for lunch. We're going to get a coffee. We're going to meet for dinner. You're going to meet me for drinks. And I want to make sure I keep the relationships alive because uh, helping companies sell into Japan is, you know, hardwired into my DNA and is something I want to do the rest of my life. Oh, you just answered the last part. Larry, listen, before <laughs> before I end this podcast, Mike, there's a question I'd like to ask everyone. If you could magically go back in time and meet the young Mike, what advice would you give him based upon all the knowledge you have now? And how old would he be? It's hard to say how old he would be, but I'd say the best time, even after you're kind of carved in stone at about, let's just say 20, because that's when you become an adult in Japan, um, the advice would be the same advice that I would give anyone for who's going to go through any difficult situation, and life will not always be easy. And my favorite quote is from a Japanese commercial from back in the day, I think, maybe the 80s um, and I love this because it's something that you know you fall down you get up right and it's basically never give up but from the TV commercial never give up and that's something I heard thousands of times uh, while watching the TV and you know they had to say it in English and had to give it that like Japanese accent because of how important it was. And I don't even remember what they were advertising. Cars, shoes, beer, I don't know. But anytime I think, wow, this is hard. Whoa, I think, never give up. Mike, thank you so much. Yeah, it's so good to see you. All right. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all on loan. So continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed. <laughs>